Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone on a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. That guy, am I on? Me? Yeah. That guy does not get any less better looking. It's not fair. <laughs> Good morning. Peace to all of you. It is so, you have no idea what delight is swelling in my chest cavity right now to be with you. Uh, Tammy and the kids all send their love to you. Moses is around here somewhere, um, but all send their love. We, without, I will discipline myself not to talk about the weather or how sappy my heart is for you. And um, we miss you terribly. We're doing well, but we miss you terribly. And it is such joy. I've been looking forward to our time together. I hear such great things about you from your leaders and about your leaders from you, and that's the winning combo, right? It's not always that way, trust me. And uh, I know every church is a church, and part of the role of the church is to draw out all that's messed up in each and one of us. Um, more on that in a few minutes, but it is really special. And the dream in my heart was at the right time to pass the baton to a team of leaders that could lead you and pastor you into new territory that I could never have done in a million years. And uh, some dreams in our heart come true, others don't. That's just part of the ache of the human condition. That one has come true. So Tyler, honor you, Gerald, Bethany, Christian, all of you, just so full of love and respect in my heart. It's good to be with you. Um, do me a favor, just take one long, deep, slow breath before we begin. I find this photograph to be haunting. This is the oil tycoon, John Paul Getty. At Sutton Palace, his home in the English countryside, right before his death in the early 60s. Uh, the, at the time, he was the richest man in the world. Short version on his biography is he was the quintessential, quote, self-made man, but the more wealthy and successful and famous he became, the more miserly he became. Multiple movies have been made about famous story where his grandson was kidnapped and he refused to pay the ransom. Apparently his last breath, his dying words were a complaint about the medical bills. And he just grew more and more alone. His wife wrote a memoir about their marriage and titled it Alone Together. Not a great sign, you know. Could be worse, John Wesley, that was a marriage to a difficult man. But you know, hopefully my wife will never write a memoir. But here he is at the climax of his life, all the money in the world. And he's sitting at the head of a table, ornate tapestries in a palace, literal golden goblets on the Michael Keating's Batman table. 
but he is all alone. This image is like the anti-messianic feast, if you're familiar with that literary motif running all the way through the library of scripture of the kingdom of God in the future when it is full here as a feast, as a banquet table with Abraham at one end, I imagine, and Jesus at the other and just set with rich food and wine and every tribe and tongue and nation at the table. This man would be miserable in the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's helpful to see the concentrated form of something in order to better understand the diluted form. And I can't think of a better image to capture the concentrated form of one of the hallmarks of late capitalist society what the sociologist Robert Bella famously called radical individualism. The self-made man, and it is normally a man, out to conquer the world, and nowadays the world is not enough. What do all the billionaires do? Where do they go? Space. What's Elon's uh, life mission? To make human beings an interplanetary species. What's your life mission? <laughs> Bella called radical individualism the defining trait of America. And the dark underbelly of radical individualism is loneliness. Now, you are likely not an oil tycoon, and I doubt you eat alone in your palace, but do you feel lonely? Do you ache for relationship, to know a bit deeper, to be known, to give and to receive love? And yet at the same time, are you scared to death of it? Do you feel that push-pull dynamic deep in the irrational part of your body where part of you is drawn toward and the other part of you is absolutely scared to death? If so, you are not alone. Welcome to the human condition. Part of this is just the pain of what it means to be a human on this side of Eden. It doesn't matter what day and age you're born into, whether you have a family or you're single or you're an oil tycoon or whatever, all of us feel the pain of loneliness. In the fourth century, St. Augustine, who was the bishop of the city of Hippo, North Africa, wrote this beautiful book called Confessions. Maybe you've read it. It is arguably the first memoir in the history of the world. And it is a theological memoir. It's a reflection on his life through the lens of Christian spirituality. And one of Augustine's most insightful contributions is his insight on loneliness. For Augustine, loneliness is the best word we have to name the felt experience of being human, of being created in the image of God, a relational being, a community of love, and yet being cast out of the garden, of feeling in our genetic code the latent memory of being naked and unashamed. We come out of the womb searching for love and connection. Experts who study attachment tell us that our attachment system comes online before or at least the moment we inhale our first breath. I just became an uncle twice over again. My sister and my brother just had babies. And if, you have, if you're ever in the miracle moment of a delivery room, you know newborn babies, they come out and just as they open their eyes, they begin looking around to make a connection. Dr. Kurt Thompson has that lovely line, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. 
So in a way, loneliness is the seedbed of all spirituality. It's the ache that drives us out of the prison of the self to search ultimately for God, the one who is looking for us. Because at our core, it turns out that what we desire is not just friends to hang out with and watch Netflix, not even lovers to know and be known by, or even family. We desire something more than any other human or any other family, no matter how intimate and loving, could ever give what ancient Christians called union with God. So, loneliness is just part of what it means to be human. The key is to let it become our pathway to God. As the Persian poet Hafiz said, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut you more deep. Let it ferment. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God absolutely clear. But that said, the cultural milieu we live in, particular in Portland, one very widely respected man I know who's been all over the world said that Portland is the most individualistic city he's ever been to. Cultural milieu we live in has turned loneliness up to a fever pitch. You all know the stats. The percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends quadrupled between 1990 and 2020. 54% of Americans, more than half, say that no one knows them well. 36% of Americans report, report they feel lonely frequently or almost all of the time. That number goes up to 51% for young mothers and 61% for young adults. Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General of the U.S., made waves when he called loneliness a social epidemic and the number one health threat in America. The claim is it is worse for you than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's not just in the U.S. The United Kingdom famously appointed a loneliness minister a few years ago. And other nations have followed suit to attempt to heal this wound at the soul of our society. But it turns out you cannot march to the beat of your own drum, be a true original, you do you, speak your truth, don't let anyone tell you what to do, paint your white canvas however you choose, and swipe right, and live in the goodness of a quiet, relational life marked by giving and receiving love. So, there's a kind of existential loneliness. Welcome to the human condition. Let it open you to God. But then there is an epidemic of loneliness that is like a blight on the land. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to live in a thick web of loving relationships right in the middle of a global epidemic of loneliness? Yes, it is the practice of community. We are working through a rule of life that has been seven plus years in the making. This for me is a dream come true to see it unfold in the life of this church. And the fourth part of our rule that even though I've moved away, I'm living by uh, with my family and beginning to gather a community in the LA around is this, a community of love and depth and a culture of individualism and superficiality through the practice of community. 
Each practice in our rule of life is intentionally designed for what you could call counterformation, just meaning it's designed to mitigate against, to stand against the powerful forces inside our own body and certainly outside our body in the city and culture all around that deform our soul and our society over time. We named two for this practice, individualism, which I just said a few words about, and superficiality, which is like a new sibling in the anti-family. As individualism has been transposed to the digital age, we have a new challenge where we know more people than ever before, yet our relationships are remarkably shallow. The digital age has traded the illusion of connectivity for the reality of community. Robert Dunbar, that I'll talk about in a few minutes, um, famously coined what sociologists now call the law of 150, and the basic data is that the human person cannot know cannot be in relationship with more than, uh, 150 is the number, but a range of 120 to 180 people. Most of you have far more numbers than that in the phone in your front right pocket. Set aside social media and email and all of that. And so we have this illusion of connectivity, but it's not community. In particular, living in cities, we're often surrounded by noise and stimulation and people and transients and crowds and that often makes it worse, the ache in our heart for love. And let's be honest, church is often not that different. We come here as Americans, most of us, which means we come here breathing the same air as everybody outside the walls of this place. And often our default setting, not a choice we make, it's just how we've been enculturated and in this city indoctrinated. We come here as individuals in a crowd, less as members of a family and more alone together. And yet there are a few things more radical, more difficult, and more beautiful than Jesus' vision of and call to community. Let's just work through a few passages. Let's read one more time, Mark chapter one, our anchor text. Look again at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother, that's interesting, a family, Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, or come apprentice under me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, <coughs> John, in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. Notice the pronouns there, it's all plural. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Just notice that Jesus did not have an apprentice like a Sith Lord. He had, he had apprentices, not singular, but plural. He called Simon and Andrew and James and John and he called them to join his new family, his new community and to quote, fish for people, meaning to invite others to come and join the community as well. Turn the page to chapter three, look down at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, so it's like a subgroup out of the community of apprentices, that he might be with them and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. 
uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Have you ever thought about why 12? Why not 21 or 70 is a nice number? Why not 120 like later? Why not 1,000? Well, it's likely that this is an intentional and highly symbolic act, that Jesus is strategically naming 12 apostles to evoke uh, Hebrew consciousness and the memory of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's Jesus' way of saying he is forming a new family. What we call the church is not, you know this, this is 101, but it's not a building, it's not an event on Sunday, it's not a nonprofit. It is a new family, not based on blood, but on apprenticeship to Jesus. Look down at verse 32, just a paragraph down. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Feels like a rhetorical question. Uh, that one over there. He looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The word here Jesus used for brother and sister is Adelphoi in Greek, and it more literally means sibling. It comes as no surprise that in the writings of the New Testament, the word Adelphoi is the only other moniker used just as frequently as mathetes, which is the word we translate disciple or apprentice. The Apostle Paul, for example, uses Adelphoi over 130 times in his letters. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 5. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought out your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. One of the main ways that Paul and the New Testament writers explain Jesus' work on the cross is through the metaphor of adoption. Through Jesus, we have been adopted into the family of God. God has become our father, Jesus our older brother, and the people sitting all around you, your siblings. When my wife, I have the privilege of being an adoptive father, and when we adopted our daughter Sunday, she simultaneously became our daughter and Jude and Moses' sister, whether she wanted it or not. She did not get to pick between the two. It was both, and she became a part of a new family. In the same way, to become an apprentice of Jesus is to become a part of a new family. Listen to Ephesians 2, speaking of the racial hostility in the early church between Jews and Gentiles, which we often don't realize is a major theme in the New Testament because it doesn't map onto the history of our nation state, but it's huge. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that we're still reading about in the news right now pretty much every day. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. What a line. Out of both of them, two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, not citizens of America, citizens of the kingdom of God, and also members of his household, his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Meaning this, quote, new humanity, what an audacious line transcends all the lines that divide us, race and class and gender and politics, all of it. 
I mean, you know all the stories, like the 12 apprentices that Jesus chose as apostles were from all over the map. One example would be Matthew was a tax farmer, literally in bed with the oppressor, the Roman Empire. Simon was a zealot. That was a first century insurgency group, kind of like a guerrilla warfare unit. They were called Daggermen or Sicaria. That's where that movie name came from because they would slip up in a crowd to a Roman soldier or official or just a Roman citizen and they would hide a dagger in their tunic and they would come out, slit their throat and then disappear back into the crowd. Matthew, Simon, hey, love for you guys to meet. We're gonna do some group spiritual direction. Why don't you just sit and <laughs> help each other listen to God and I mean, we don't even have a category. Like you can't even like take the brightest red hat you've ever seen on the MAGA side and the farthest AOC you can go and you're not even close to the tension, the hate. He's made two groups one, he's put to death the hostility. This is not like attracts like. This is based on something else. Meaning, and please listen, all of that was to say, Jesus' desire is not just to form you into a person of love, but to form us into a community of love. We say a lot about what Jesus has done, but have you ever thought about what is Jesus doing now? Between his resurrection and his return, like what's he doing right now? I, I don't know exactly, for the record. <laughs> um, I know in scripture that he is praying for you and I, but best as I can tell, this is my interpretation of the New Testament. What Jesus is doing right now is he is forming a new community from every tribe and tongue and nation, every language you could imagine, every color of skin, every ethnic background, every generation, every corner of the globe. He's forming us into people of love, joy, peace, wisdom, courage, humility, strength and weakness, ultimately power, in order to one day co-rule together with him over the cosmos itself. I would imagine that will take a bit of training for you and I. One word for that training is discipleship. Best as I can tell, that's what he is doing right now. Now, this has all sorts of implications for our apprenticeship to Jesus. The most obvious one is you can't follow Jesus alone. Not you shouldn't, not hey guys, it's not a great idea, maybe you should think about something else, or hey, I would advise against it. No, just full on, you can't. The whole point of the spiritual journey is to become a person of love. Jesus was flat out on that one. The greatest commandment in all of the scripture of his day was to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Dr. Todd Hall of Rosemead School of Psychology calls the Christian faith a relational spirituality by which we are loved into people of love. This means that what we call spiritual formation is not just a set of disciplines and exercises and a rule of life. It is, a, at the end of the day, a relational process. 
Dr. Joseph Hellerman, in my favorite book on community, put it this way. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Persons who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often, always, messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow, people who leave do not grow. This is why church is so essential. But, pause, with a lot of gentleness, by church I do not mean church attendance. This is part of what I'm hinting at, but it's really not the center point. Sabbath worship is an essential part of our formation. But while God works through all shapes and styles and sizes of churches, as a general rule, it is in the smaller, more relational spaces where we experience the most profound change. There is a growing body of research from the social sciences that groups relationships into different categories based on group size and the depth of vulnerability. And ironically, it maps perfectly onto the story of Jesus. One of the most widely accepted paradigms is from the evolutionary psychologist Dr. Robert Dunbar of Oxford. It's kind of loosely referred to as Dunbar's number. I would just call it the four circles of community. He calls our inner circle our intimates. This would be one to five people max who deeply know us as we are, light and our shadow, and ideally love us as we are too. Of course, that stat was 54% of people in America have no intimates. Back to the fallout of radical individualism combined with the divorce rate and the breakdown of the family. But hopefully you have a few people you can bear all of your soul to. A best friend and or a spouse or a mentor or some old friends from college. The next circle is our friends, which goes kind of up to different sociologists have different numbers, but right around 15 people. This is the people we do life with. We practice the one another's of the New Testament. We help each other move. We go on vacation together. We share meals. We drop off groceries. We help each other discern God's next step. This is our community. The next threshold is around the 150 person mark. Again, this is the law of 150. It's about the maximum number of people you can know. And it turns out it is the optimal group size for most human organization. He looked at you know, the average size of villages in both indigenous culture and medieval Europe. He looked at military units. He looked at all of this stuff and said it's right around this number. And we draw on this wider social network for all sorts of things. If you read that book, The Strength of Weak Ties, you need kind of like weak ties. Like I'm trying to help my son get a job right now. So I'm like texting random people. Know of anybody hiring high schoolers right now? Because we need him to get a job. I'm tired of, <laughs> I'm done paying for your gas, bro, um, right? And, and it needs to be a bad job, like the worst. Those kids that never have a bad job are just horrible human beings as adults. <laughs> like if you have not had a couple of really bad jobs, you're destined for uh, egomania, you know? So if you know anybody in LA that has a really bad job for a high schooler with great hours and he can still keep Sabbath, that'd be great, thank you. <laughs> this, is our, this is our village, per se. 
And then the final circle you could just call our tribe. This is the larger kind of group we identify with and we belong to. We don't know these people personally, but this group is where we get a vision of life and a call to live with meaning and purpose. For many in the secular world, this would be Nike or it would be a political party or if you're from the UK, it would be your sport, like your football team or whatever. For us as followers of Jesus, this is the church of Jesus. All that to say, when it comes to our spiritual formation, one, we need relationships across all four circles. Jesus had relationships at every layer. He had three intimates, Peter, James, and John for a four total. He had 12 and a few close friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus that were his kind of, his circle. Then he had a group of at least 120 in Jerusalem. And then of course the larger church that he left behind. Healthy people have relationships across all four circles. But, here's what I'm getting to. Our deepest formation, growth, healing, and change all happens in the smaller circles. We need what Celtic Christians called an anamkara, a soul friend or a spiritual friend to bear the weight of life together. C.S. Lewis once said the essence of friendship can be summed up with the phrase, you too? Meaning we come together around some kind of a shared joy that could be backpacking in the Cascades or third wave coffee or video games. Hopefully for us with an anamkara, that shared joy is Jesus. And we need a community, a family to do life together. We were created to live deeply relational lives and it's in these first two circles that we experience the deepest and most lasting transformation. And yet we have mixed feelings about these relationships, don't we? Part of us like we just have this ache for it. I want to know and be known and love. Part of us, in particular for some of you, are terrified of it. Especially if you did not receive safe, steady love from your parents or caregivers or if you've been deeply wounded along the way. I certainly have. Pray for Tyler and I. It's really hard right now. <laughs> Just kidding. The Portland therapist Susie Hausch likes to say, our deepest wounds come from relationships, but so does our deepest healing. Whatever your emotional appetite for intimacy is, these deeper relationships are essential if you want to heal and grow. Let me just take a moment before we end to name what these relationships look like. Anamkara kind of spiritual friendships are marked by at least three core characteristics. The first is depth. These are not superficial relationships where we chat about the weather and our work projects and what show we're watching on TV. We talk about what's below the surface of our life. We talk about our life with God. We tend to talk about our pain and our suffering. We talk about our sin where our growth edge is in formation. But it's not just depth, it's also vulnerability. We come together around our weakness, not just our strength. We hopefully are raw and honest and transparent and there's no filter with each other about what Jesus flat out called our spiritual poverty, our lack of spiritual Christ-likeness. There are two parts to this. You know, One is telling the truth or what we call the practice of confession, which is one of the most important kind of sub-practices to community along with the Lord's Supper or the meal together. 
Confession is naming our sin and our shame to one another. As Tyler has so beautifully said, we can't live without sin, but we can live without secrets. Don't you wanna be a person with no secrets? Can you imagine the, the lightness of chest if you could live, and you can, by the way, with no secrets? I'm sure many of you don't believe me right now. May God help you to believe it because it's true. The other facet is listening, listening deeply to each other's stories and struggles. Neurobiologists tell us that when people feel felt in the language of therapy, when they feel listened to in a compassionate, intentional way, it's indistinguishable from feeling loved. I just taught my kids the, the SLANT method. Are you familiar with that? It's an acronym, SLANT. Uh, stand up, um, lean forward, ask questions, nod your head, track the speaker. Guess what, they're not doing any of those things. <laughs> but they have been warned by dad. David Brooks in his recent book, How to Know a Person, which is lovely, writes this, there is one skill that lies at the heart of any healthy person, family, school, community, organization, or society, the ability to see someone else deeply and make them feel seen to accurately know another person, to let them feel valued, heard, and understood. This is at the heart of being a good person, the ultimate gift you can give others and yourself. Not to just label somebody with a number from the Enneagram, which is not even remotely accurate, or some personality thing, or some extrovert or extrovert, or social class thing, or race thing, but to know the intricacy of a beautiful and flawed human soul as they actually are. This is the gift we give each other. Neurobiologists would say we can't, the whole like, you do you and choose your, you can't do that at a scientific level. Your brain needs another person's brain in order to discover who it actually is. We are relational beings made in the image of a relational God. And as we listen deeply to each other tell our stories and help each other make sense of our stories in God, we begin to slowly but surely experience real healing from sin and from shame. And finally is a commitment to transformation, and I have to say this. When monks join a monastery, they take vows. <coughs> one common one, it's a bit different in each order, but is conversatio morum, or conversion of life. That's far more Catholic. Catholics use the word conversion differently than Protestants do. They don't mean like a moment in your past. They mean like the next kind of level up in your formation. And conversion of life is essentially a vow to lifelong spiritual formation. It's a vow to never stop growing into people of love and God. Uh, psychologists, I'm sure you're familiar, they distinguish between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Many people reach a certain level of spiritual and psychological maturity, and then they kind of plateau into a fixed mindset. I'm good. Church then just becomes a place to kind of come and help you stay good and just kind of feel good. You kind of want just to hear what you already say and what you already know and kind of get a little emotional. Ha, <sighs> okay. But as apprentices of Jesus, we come together not just to be a safe place to process emotional pain, but ultimately to give ourselves more deeply to Jesus. And I just have to say this, it's awkward but it's true. Spiritual friendships do not work. 
if one member is not fully committed to the transformational journey. So, depth, vulnerability, and a commitment to transformation. Here's the thing. It's possible to go to church every Sunday, even to be in a Bridgetown community, and never have these types of relationships. How do I know that? Because I did it for years. <laughs> Where? Right here. I remember, without going into all the story that I'm sure I've said a thousand times, but when I first began to, I mean, I did not grow up. This was not in my spiritual paradigm. I have lovely family and all of that, but this was not in our spirituality. And when I first kind of woke up to Jesus' call to community and the role it plays in just human flourishing in general and formation in particular, you know, we started very, very small. It was before Bridgetown Communities. And Matt and Anna, who I don't think are here because they don't really love me anymore, but they um, moved in across the street from us and we began to just, us and a few others, just started eating a meal together. And then, you know, you kind of pass through those intimacy gradients over time and you begin to kind of open up more and tell your stories and make sense of your stories and help each other make decisions and God bless you and go on vacation. You know this, Lindsay, you're down there sneezing, but you've been living in your, how long have you been in your community? 12 years. 12 years, yeah. And then community, it's like, it's like Kanye said about marriage, it's like dog years, you know? Um, so he was actually married for a really long time, you know? It's amazing. <laughs> he was right about dog years. I said some other things that are, wow, okay. And then we started to confess our sins to each other. I mean, just on down the list. Of course, we kept going to church on Sunday, but most of our life together wasn't around a stage. It was around a table. And as romantic as that may sound, we had to learn what all of you in community have had to learn. The hard, I had to learn it the hard way about what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called the wish dream of community. If you do know about this, if not, I'm so sorry, but you're welcome. In his book, Life Together, he writes, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become the destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. This is a guy who at Finkenwald lived in an intentional community by a rule of life, 120 people all together. It's not theory for him, it's practice. No actual church or friendship can possibly live up to the wish dream of the ideal church or friendship. Honestly, I can tell you after many years of living this way in community that it is not easy. And when it goes wrong, it is incredibly painful. That wound goes. When you let people in and they wound you, but when it goes right, it is a glimpse of eternity in time. It's changed my life. Um, I'm just one person, but it has changed my life. We moved to LA in July, and um, again, the weather's okay, guys. Don't worry about it. Uh, just had to just slide that one in there. I'm not your pastor anymore. I don't care what you think of me. It's just, you know, once, once a year is great. I just get to come back, and as long as I can, it's great. Um, no. Uh, we love it, uh, kind of, but um, it has been painfully lonely. And uh, we're good, I have one really close friendship that I treasure. I have uh, my sisters there, some family, 
and we're just very slowly beginning to one meal at a time around our table build a new community. Um, but I'm just more in touch with the pain of loneliness than I've been in my whole life. When you stay somewhere for a long time, I don't know how to say this nicely, your problem becomes you have too many friends. And that's a great problem to have. Um, that's no longer my problem. And it's, it's, it's painful, the cut of loneliness. It goes so deep. I was deeply wounded by a friend, not Tyler, Gerald actually. But um, <laughs> deeply, deeply. <laughs> <laughs> What's the drama? What's the backstory? No, I'm so sorry. I just, I'm so sorry. I'm so boring. I like these people. Um, and I, man, I felt more strongly over the last year both my desire for relationship and my fear of it at the same time. Felt everything in my body just want to wall off and go back to my introverted ways. Point is, I will never go back to going to church on Sunday having a few superficial friendships and living like an American the rest of the week. Done. I don't, I, however I live, I will not live that way. And yet, this kind of life, deep, relational, imperfect, messy, beautiful life, in the day and age of radical individualism, the iPhone, screen-based living, digital distraction, political polarization, transience, hurry, exhaustion, burnout. These types of relationships will not just fall on your head. They will require you and I to make an intentional effort. They will require a rule of life. Because a rule of life is not just a set of spiritual disciplines for devotional life. So what it is. In fact, the very first rule of the like, first like official official rule of life was written by Saint Augustine. You know why it was written? Because when he said yes to the bishop uh, role in Hippo, he was wise enough to realize I cannot do this alone. I need a community. And so his one stipulation was that the other vicars and pastors in the city that he was the bishop of would all move in together to this giant compound. And he wrote the first rule of life to organize their life together, and it is still in use 1,600 years from now in Augustinian communities in both the Anglican tradition and the Catholic tradition. This tiny micro-resurgence in rule of life that Bridgetown's a part of and the work I do is a part of is beautiful. But tragically, it is almost entirely being run through the grid of radical individualism with individual people writing their own rule of life. And that is not a bad thing. That's a giant step in the right direction. But I just wanna clarify that historically, that's an oxymoron. There's no example of that in 2,000 years of church history. Historically, a rule of life was for a community. It was designed to hold a community together around shared rhythms of spiritual formation so that it doesn't devolve into dinner with friends and a concert on the weekend to make you emotionally and spiritually feel nice, but rather has conversion of life, conversatio morum, growth at the discipleship to Jesus at the center. Fostering relationships of depth, love, vulnerability in our age will require a level of discipline and intentionality and self-sacrificial love. It will require a rule of life. So to end, go ahead and just clear off your lap. If you would like, um, 
Take a few just deep breaths. I would invite you if you want to close your eyes. You don't need to, it's up to you. You do you, all of that. Um, just a few questions for you to reflect on before we open the front for prayer. Come Holy Spirit, fill our mind and imagination, our memory, our body, heal the trauma, the fear. Some of us going back to before we came out of our mother's womb. The broken ways that we have attempted to shield and defend ourselves from hurt. God, let it come up now and set us free, set our heart free. One, do you have your Peter, James, and John? Your three, your intimates? And who are they? Two, do you have your 12, your community, your table? And three, whatever your answer is there, and there's not a right one, this is for you. What's the next step for you to move deeper into a relational spirituality? Mm -hmm.